This podcast is brought to you in association with Cloud Banking. Recently, we had done a global report where we were looking at sizing profit pools and revenue pools coming from different economies in the world on fintech, and it's quite interesting that APAC is going to lead the way. We actually expect fintech revenues to go up six x from where it is today by 2030, right? Which is a huge, humongous growth, hitting 600 billion dollars. and hence we see companies like maya and others actually have a great opportunity to drive financial inclusion making the underbanked or not happily banked more happy and creating value welcome to the gff 23 show this podcast brings you a taste of the global fintech fest organized by the fintech convergence council payments council of india and national payments corporations of india happening in mumbai from the 5th through the 7th of september 2023 over the past 3 years gff has grown to become the largest fintech summit globally demonstrating the pivotal role of fintech and driving sustainable global advancement by showcasing a 360 degree view of its transformative potential In this episode, Mr. Shailesh Baidwan, president of Maya Group and co-founder of Maya Bank, engages in a riveting conversation with Mr. Sumit Kumar, managing director and partner at Boston Consulting Group. Shailesh shares his insights on how generative AI's potential to analyze vast unstructured data can revolutionize financial inclusion. By understanding data about individuals and organizations, it can better inform credit decisions and investment advice. Boston Consulting Group is the thought leadership partner for this episode. Hey, good afternoon, Shailesh. How are you doing? Very well, Sumit. How are you? Very good, very good. And you know, thank you for taking out time today to talk to us about democratization of finance in emerging nations. As you are aware, you know this is a very, very critical topic today, which is in the mind of consumers, regulators, and players, right? And would love to hear from you to start with, right? On what does democratization of finance mean to you, and why is it important in markets where you operate? Sure, Samantha. Thanks to you and to uh, GFF for this podcast. So, basically, imagine a world where access to financial services is affordable, it's effective, it's safe, and is available to all. Uh, that is the driving force behind inclusive finance and democratization. So, to give you an example, or to keep this real, give you a quick story. Right outside our office building, there is a vendor selling fish balls every afternoon. And this is someone who had absolutely no financial footprint whatsoever. Our employees would go there for a quick street food snack, and so they give him a printout of uh, the Maya QR code and help set up his Maya QR on his phone. And then he started getting paid with that account and started using the balance and to buy his telco load, paying his electricity bill. And then as time passed, he expanded, had a baby, had a family. Uh, we also got into digital banking about a year back or so. He opened an account, started saving the money and proceeds from the sales of his fish fall, and over a period of time, as we saw transactions, we are now able to score him and uh, potentially provide him with a loan. So this is really a case of how you use technology and digital finance to really democratize it and take it forward. So it is all about giving individuals a freedom to save and grow their money. providing them stability during economic uncertainties and facilitating seamless access to help them progress in their lives and the same thing of course works for micro and SME segments which also tend to be hugely unserved and can do with the benefits of 
digitization and democratization of finance. It's so interesting how things are moving in that direction. And as BCG, when we look at different markets around the world, it's quite interesting how the government has also become super serious about it, right? Because there was a time when payments can only be made with credit cards and debit cards and there's a huge amount of MDR charges. While we are not against MDR and we are not saying, you know, you should not pay for the infrastructure, but I still remember days when banks like customers or merchants will have to shell 3-4% of the transaction away. And especially for small merchants, it becomes difficult. And with the government infrastructure of new payment rails, driving QR, making payments so easy, that is driving a lot of adoption of real payments, which is structured digital payments, which can actually create transparency. This is amazing. In fact, you know, I think for me, what's also interesting is how the new age technology is going to change a lot of financial inclusion, right? I mean, there's a lot of buzz about Gen AI and you know, in our lens, Gen AI is very simple, right? There's a ton and ton of data out there, right? And today, we try to write models or build models to understand that data, but there is only so much we could do with traditional AI, right? But with gen generative AI, where all amount of unstructured data, which is available about people, about companies, about organizations, it will become so much more easier to give them credit, to advise them what to buy, to advise them what to invest on, right? And that power is amazing. I mean, I was also recently looking at the whole article where PayPal now is introducing a stable coin to actually reduce their cost of transferring money, right? And today I know in Philippines, when you send someone a PayPal transfer from Singapore, a lot of that money is taken away by PayPal, right? Because there's a cost to transfer. And, you know, with, with digital, uh, with, with the whole distributed ledger and using stable coins, that cost is going to go down, right? So it's amazing to see how government and technology is moving in the direction of democratization of finance. But Maya, as a fintech neobank, which is really uh, now making huge strides in the market and going after unbanked individuals, right? In markets like Philippines and then other mar neighboring markets, Vietnam, Indonesia, where unbanked population is so high. What do you think is the biggest role the fintechs and neobanks are going to play in emerging economies in trying to actually bank the unbanked and really drive financial inclusion and democratization of finance? So, right. So, Look, I think at a country level, one of the Philippines has an emerging and a good story to tell. But if you look at financial account ownership, for example, it surged from 29% in 2019 to a much more impressive 56% in 2021, largely due to the popularity of e-wallets, including us. But that still means that nearly one in two Filipino does not have a bank account or a basic financial account. So basic banking penetration is still very much a challenge here with only 31% of adults using banks for savings and over 52% choosing to keep their savings at home. Um, additionally, a mere 4% of Filipino adults borrow from banks, leaving a significant portion without access to formal credit, relying on friends, families, or other not-so-savory informal sources. Uh, so there is a big, big gap, and really the mission for people like us in digital bank in the Philippines is ready to bridge this gap and see how do we make this, take this to the next level. So the fundamental, the starting point in the Philippines is very different from anywhere, say, in India or Singapore, where over 90% of the adult population are banked. So the flavor of digital banking itself is also very difficult over there. And in some of these places, it's actually tough to see how, for example, digital bank is in really well-backed countries where the existing players have really upped their game with their own capability will make a sizable difference. 
So that I think has been a bit of a challenge for the digital banking, especially in the developed markets. But here in Philippines, I think we are solving a fairly fundamental and big, hairy problem. That's why someone like us had to come up with some big, hairy solutions, including things like our all-in-one digital banking app, where we integrated and launched all the financial services in one interface. So there's an app for consumers, and similarly, there's an app for MSMEs for them to do all the financial transactions. And just a bit of trivia, in the Philippines, we were the first mobile wallet linked to a phone. It was called Smart Money. And then we launched uh, the bank, and that was launched way back in 2000, even before M-Pesa. So fast forward to today, and like I said, more than half the Filipinos have an account. We still have a long way to go on basic credit and deposit penetration. So I do believe that over here, the digital banks are coming in trying to solve some very basic kind of requirements and working closely with regulators and government to do that. And frankly, it's also not just about the unbanked, right? It sounds like, yes, there's unbanked. But when I look at in the Philippines, there's a very large segment of what I call unhappily banked. So these are people who are technically banked. They're salary people who have just an ATM account and at best an e-wallet, and that's about it. And to put this in context, like our own employees from the bank where we have our own payroll, barely any of them, in fact, have a credit card or a loan from that bank where they've been banking for years. In fact, in my own case, I tried to get a credit, back, credit card from them just to see the process. It was like pretty much like pulling teeth for months and months. So over here, it's not just the kind of unbanked, but even this kind of very lightly banked or unhappily banked segment that needs to be solved for. And that's what we are working with, along with focus on the MSME segments and the government and regulatory infrastructure is supportive of now this push. Well, it's interesting. And look, I think the way we look at it, fintechs and neobanks are going to be a big part of the story in Asia Pacific. In fact, recently we had done a global report where we were looking at sizing profit pools and revenue pools coming from different economies in the world on fintech. And it's quite interesting that APAC is going to lead the way. We actually expect fintech revenues to go up 6x from where it is today by 2030, right? Which is a huge humongous growth, hitting $600 billion. And hence, we see companies like Maya and others actually have a great opportunity to drive financial inclusion, making the underbanked or not happily banked more happy and creating value for the investors and for the consumers, right? So it's, it's a great opportunity and it's great to see what Maya is doing. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, as a starting point in geographies like Philippines, which is, you know, thousands of islands. Physical infrastructure is always going to be difficult, extremely expensive, and hence for someone like us to come in to be able to provide the services to a developing market where our fundamental construct allows us with very low unit cost, with very high reach, to be able to bring in customers with very low friction. Friction not just in terms of ease and comfort, but here's an interesting insight. In the Philippines, we found when we were researching to launch the digital bank, a lot of people actually felt uncomfortable walking into a traditional bank branch to open an account because they felt that they were being judged on their clothes and who they were. And, and you know, this was something that was for, not for them. It was for richer people or for people better off than them. So someone like us being able to go in without the encumbrances of physical infrastructure with different cost base, from the start, setting ourselves up to service a very large segment with fees and structures and cost structures 
that are designed for low transactions, high velocity, I think is really interesting. And, you know, in a massive, frankly, unserved market, which in our speak equals to TAM, makes us feel good about not just doing the right thing for the country, for the segment, but doing it in such a way that is profitable for our shareholders. So we do absolutely agree and believe that there is a huge opportunity here to do the right thing the right way and, and profitably. And that's why, you know, the bank is about 12 months old and very happy we already segmented with the positive. And as a company, we are working towards full profitability over the next coming 10, 12 months or so. That's very interesting to hear. One thing which is quite interesting is the role the regulators have played here, Shalish, and would love your thoughts also on that. But at least when I look at how the regulatory landscape is becoming much and much pro neobanking, digital banking towards fintechs is quite amazing, right? Be it capital requirements, be it setting up the infrastructure, be it making KYC much more simpler, be it allowing eKYC, making compliance overhead go down. I think that has been quite interesting. And what is interesting for me to see is, you know, and even at, like, I do operate in markets of Philippines, Indonesia, Vietnam. It's very interesting to see, you know, the play is not just limited to payments now, right? If you look at the past, right, like big players like Paytm, Alipay, they all started with payments, right? In fact, even Maya started with payments at one point of time. But today, the the array of offerings has become huge. Not just we are doing consumer unsecured lending or SME unsecured lending. I'm also seeing players now enter into secured lending, right? I think uh, in Philippines, I'm hearing players are entering into motorbike lending, right? Which is amazing, right? I mean, some of these guys who don't have access to capital and who are going to loan sharks to buy some of these products are getting access to some of, these, uh, some of the better financing options where the banks are also more friendlier than a loan shark and really giving great customer experience. So it's amazing to see how things are evolving. I think one of the interesting things in our mind is also like, what do you think is the future of the product shelf which could be offered by players like Maya to drive democratization? And how are you guys approaching things around partnerships and new technology to really take it to the next level? Before we go on with the episode, a quick word from our sponsors. In the heart of the banking world, where every second counts and efficiency is paramount, a revelation, a cloud solution Indian banking can rely upon. Cloud banking. Process loans in less than 10 minutes with seamless integration, automation at its finest, and workflows that adapt to your needs. Step into the future. Elevate your bank's lending operations with cloud banking. Now, back to the episode. Absolutely. As you mentioned, you know, the market over here just is so unfortunately poorly served at this stage. I mean, just to give you another fact, right, on the MSME, only 4% of all the loan disbursement by the bank is to the MSME segment. But the segment itself accounts for over 40% of the country's GDP. So that gives you an idea of why and how underserved even the whole MSME segment is and such a backbone of the economy and of the country. So the opportunities for players like ourselves and other digital banks and other providers of services is massive over here. I mean, we're just beginning to scratch the surface with, with the services and products that we've got. I think what's really critical is in a country where there's paucity of data, how do you, first of all, build up those data assets? How do you build up capabilities that solve for the lack of data? Uh, in a number of cases, or for thin files and the like, uh, and the likes of that, and I think that's where 
someone like us has a natural advantage, as you said, started from payments and payments really help to create a large pool of data of ability to acquire customers at a fairly low unit cost, whether it was on the consumer side or whether it was on the MSME side. Now that data with our capabilities that we have built up on the AI side, as you mentioned earlier, is really helping us to monetize and be able to reach out to these customers in a way that is meaningful. And we are beginning to see like even in our early vintages of lending to the customers, our delinquency rates, our loss rates are very much along the parameters of what we thought. And as a digital bank, of course, our approach to lending is more conservative in terms of the loss rate and, and how we look at it. So I'm very pleased to see because a lot of people think that the segments which are not covered are actually subprime or kind of high risk. In a country like Philippines, that's not the case. It just haven't been served. And hence, when you reach out to them, as if you can do a calibrated along with some internal data that you have, which is really critical and, and has been the backbone for us, uh, for us to use that and be able to go out there and offer them relevant products and services, which are quick, easy, non-judgmental, as I mentioned, uh, and uses the data that we have in a meaningful way, you're seeing great take of our products. We're seeing the propensity of customers to pay all that back and same thing with the MSMEs, and very pleased with that. So the thesis always over here was, it's an unserved market. It's not about a subprime and others. And that's really beginning to play out. So I think there is enough and more opportunity here for multiple players to get in, in an environment that the regulatory framework allows for quick, easy, digital access and digital uh, interaction and, 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 and a full end-to-end solution. That really helps. So we are really pleased with the progress that we are making, very fast progress. Six of us got a digital bank. We were the last ones to get the bank license, but the first one to launch and continue to see really strong growth. I think the last fact report from BSP that came out as of 31st March, more than 50% of depositors and deposits are with us. So really great to see the customer traction take up and response. Amazing. So, Sarah, we were talking about profitability, right? And how do you balance between profitability for a neobank versus, you know, ensuring that you continue to work on giving access to the underserved or the unhappily banked and really balance these two? How, how do you guys think of that as you run Maya and as you're trying to scale up Maya? Yeah, uh, I think the question becomes more of a pressing or challenging question if... At the start, so much you've thought of the two as two separate pieces, right? Uh, for us, we were very clear from the start that the segment that we are going after, and like I said at the start, you know, the size of the segment in the Philippines is very large. We're going after the individual consumers, and we are going after the uh, micro and the small and medium enterprises. And for these segments, at the start, how we set ourselves up by the the way the Maya Bank was constructed in terms of its cost structures and technology structure, its capabilities, very much from the start set up with the idea of being able to serve uh, these segments at uh, revenue and cost structure, which we had very much projected would be the right uh, revenue and cost structure. And for us, the backing of the base of that was making sure that we have an existing set of customers that we had acquired through the payments ecosystem that we had on both the sides and really 
the data and the information that we had collected, monetizing that now by introducing high margin products around lending, and of course, solving for the balance sheet by making sure that we provide them with savings. So very much at the start, thinking through the various levers that will be important in the immediate term, the midterm, and the long term for the financial sustainability of the bank. And based on that, we've been very pleasantly surprised, both in terms of, as I was mentioning, the deposit base and the customers have interacted with us and placed their trust and their money with us. And at the same time, us being able to lend out, we have uh, nearly half a million customers that we have already lent to the Philippines, and we have disbursed uh, upwards of 10 billion pesos. And we're seeing very high quality uh, performance of the book. Uh, very low delinquency rates, very much uh, along the lines, in fact, better than the lines of what we had initially projected. And now we are only testing with the MSME segments. We already have our beta products out there, and we have put our first loans out there. So for us, the two were always thought through in tandem. And if you've done that and then constructed your cost and revenue models accordingly, I think it sets you up for success. The problem is if you've looked at it differently in terms of your thesis on the segment size, profitability versus or, or your cost of funding or whatever else options that you made, and then you're having to discover that you're not realizing on those, then it can be problematic. So we are looking at the bank is already segmented bit positive. Uh, so very pleased with that. And then, as I mentioned, overall taking the, the entire company to profitability sometime in the second half of next year. Amazing. No, this is amazing to hear, right? Maybe I'll just conclude with one question, Saleh. Some thought from me and would love your reaction on that, right? I think, you know, we work a lot with the financial services industry, right? And I think we also look at what comes in way of democratization of finance, right? While each and every regulator today is trying to become more transparent and more friendly, but the challenge is there is no global standard, right? And that becomes a challenge. The reason for that is many players are not just in-country, but they go across countries to serve their customers. And for example, people would look at Southeast Asia as a market and not just one market within one country. And that starts to come in way in how you build up your infrastructure. I think the other challenge is the whole availability of the digital infrastructure, right? I mean, we can talk all about democratization of finance, you know, and try to say, I want to make mortgage more affordable for people, especially if it's not a proper developer-based home, but, you know, we will not have land records, right? Uh, financial literacy is a big, big challenge, right? With As people start to control their bank on the phone, frauds become so, so, so big, right? And especially in a population where literacy is much lower than the rest of the world. And then finally, you know, especially when you do smaller ticket loans, credit risk becomes quite important. And, you know, as even with smaller waves of economic uncertainty, credit risk could actually throw a big challenge. So as you think of some of these things that we are seeing, how is Maya coping with some of these challenges? How are you guys thinking of managing some of this to ensure that, you know, the platform that you're building to serve the customers is pretty robust and continues to thrive towards profitability? Yeah, you pulled all the key challenges out there. So with uh, we live and breathe those on a daily basis. Basic stuff, and we start with the developing market. I mean, the Philippines national ID is still in the early stages of rollout. And you spoke about financial literacy or the lack of acknowledgement by people of what that means for their long-term financial health and well-being. We see in Philippines, for example, people selling their KYC information for a few hundred pesos, right? For a couple of dollars. In other places, people are worried about identity theft. Over here, people are willingly selling their identity because they really don't 
understand uh, the value of that and, and the consequences of that. Right? So we are in a very different world. So the question is, you can solve for over a period of time, there are systemic movements that will happen of national ID, over on credit literacy, and all those will come up. So those are factors that are part of your thinking that kind of mid to long term. But in the short term, you have to very much know the local market, know all these issues. And similarly, if you're in the MSME segment, understand what goes on over there, what drives them, what is their access to capital, and how do they think about various pieces and what gives you an ability to credibly ascertain whether that MSME is who they claim to be, whether it's documentation or other parameters. And that's the local market knowledge, which becomes really very critical. I don't think there's anything that you know, you can do to run away from a deep understanding of the local market and local knowledge. And to that extent, you know, Southeast Asia might feel like one market, but it's very, very different. So so Philippines versus an Indonesia versus Vietnam versus a Cambodia or a Thailand. Yeah, extremely different. And that's why our focus has very much been very much here to solve for the Philippines. We know the local market. We understand the customer. We've been here for a long period of time. We have built up the capability, understanding, knowledge, not just in terms of knowing those segments, but also from the people side of the house, right? That's the other really important piece which people miss is the talent pool, right? Uh, It is in short supply, especially as we look at digital, whether it's engineers, whether it's data scientists, whether it's paired analysts, all these. So these are building blocks that you have to be aware of and build out over a period of time. And as you build a brand, as you build your credibility, then you're able to establish that. So to me, it's bringing in experienced, thoughtful senior leaders who are thinking through what you need for the short term, even as you build out for the longer term. It is knowing where the gaps are and being conscious about where do you take risk, where do you not take risk, and building your plans accordingly. And that comes from, like I said, just deep local understanding. So we are very clear. The capabilities that we are building out in terms of tech and others are productizable, but in terms of working, you definitely need someone who knows the local market, a local partner. Uh, if tomorrow we do decide to look at market outside, we will bring our tech and other capabilities, but someone on the ground who knows the ground is absolutely essential. And that, I think, has been critical for our success. And I don't think you can run away from that. You can accelerate some of these learnings, but there is a time factor that you just can't wish away. Nice. Amazing. And it's sort of be cognizant of time, but any closing thoughts from you for the listeners here? Like any closing thoughts from you on how this industry will evolve and the whole democratization of finance? Sure. I mean, I'll give two plugs since you've given me the opportunity for the hat. The one is a plug for the Philippines. I think Philippines, uh, a lot of the time, hasn't gotten and received its due share under the sun. I think it is now getting a little more into the limelight, as I think some of the other markets as investors are seeing are either looking very expensive or, or overpriced. Philippines are a very large country in Southeast Asia with over 100 million people, uh, a country where the, where the GDP, the consumption GDP is actually the second largest. So it's a very large consumption economy and it is hugely unserved. So I think Philippines as a destination for investors to think about uh, should be, you know, we already see that happening with a lot of investors, but I would encourage all those who are listening to this podcast to really look at the Philippines, the macros of the country in terms of GDP growth rates, in terms of the stability of the currency, 
there's a lot of very, very positive uh, pieces, the, the young country, the age-wise and all the rest. So please look at Philippines as a destination. You know, it's a really important, interesting opportunity. And the second is from our side, right? From my side, we really, please, we are the number one digital bank in the Philippines. We are the number one ecosystem that is their financial ecosystem for us. We serve the consumer segment. We have millions of registered users, uh, millions of monthly active, daily active users. And on the, similarly, on the MSME side of the house, we have a very large acquirer which possess the majority of the payment transactions in the country across Visa, MasterCard, QR. And now we are going beyond that into serving the segments with our digital bank lending and other capabilities. So would be very keen to partner with other capability providers or others who would want to look at exploring the Philippines. So please to reach out. We are constantly hungry for working with people who, who have the capability, expertise, know-how, and can accelerate our plans and journey on both driving financial inclusion with moving towards a profitable and a credible business for ourselves. Amazing. No, amazing to hear. And Sarish, thank you for your time. And thank you, GFF, for the platform. Hope you guys had a great time listening to us. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. We want to take this opportunity to thank Mr. Shailesh Baidwan, president of Maya Group and co-founder of Maya Bank, and Sumit Kumar, managing director and partner at Boston Consulting Group, for taking time off their schedule to bring you this episode. The Global Fintech Fest, Global collaboration for a responsible financial ecosystem, inclusive, resilient, sustainable, happening in Mumbai from the 5th through the 7th of September, 2023. The Global Fintech Fest is brought to you by the National Payments Corporation of India, the Payments Council of India, and the Fintech Convergence Council. For more details about GFF23, visit globalfintechfest.com. To listen to previous episodes of the GFF23 show, visit ubersaga.com. We also want to thank the team at Ubersaga, the official podcast partner for GFF23. Post-production and sound design by Subash, editing and scripting by Darsh, and voiceover by Abe.